Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Come on in and pull up a seat as we continue our conversation with John Turk. John, the next big expedition for you was Ellesmere Island. However, before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Can you describe for me the difference between the John Turk that set out from Japan to go to Alaska as compared to the John Turk who set out for Ellesmere Island? <laughs> well, for one, I was quite a bit older. When I set out for Ellesmere, I was 65. When I set out Japan to Alaska, I was uh, maybe 50 or something. So that's a big difference. But in between, I spent five years, not continuous, but off and on in the village of Vivenka with Mulanot, the old shaman, and with my Koryak friends there, Olek, the hunter, Sergei, and so on. And they changed my life. They changed who I am considerably. They introduced me into indigenous wisdoms, into indigenous ways of thinking. I mean, on its primary basis, I had never, as a young man growing up in suburban Connecticut, going to high school with George W. Bush, becoming a PhD chemist, had never thought about communicating with Kucha the Raven and flying to the other world. That was not part of my realm of, con of consciousness, but in those five years that became my realm of consciousness, I was healed during such a process. And it was very mysterious. And what happened to me is I was opened up to this realm of consciousness that is mysterious. It's still mysterious. I, 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 I can't and won't try to explain it, but it introduced to me the concept of deep power, where our power comes from and how deep it is beyond this superficial, oh, I think I can do this. And I entered the Ellesmere trip with a concept of testing this deep power. I had looked at that trip 20, 30 years before and deemed it impossible to do. Nobody could walk over really rough terrain, hauling uh, incredible weights. Nobody could walk 15 miles a day, half a marathon a day, every day over the Arctic ice pack. And now with Mulanot's power, I thought I could do it. Elsmer Island, the circumnavigation of that island in one year was called the last great Arctic adventure that remained to be completed. Why is that? It's just hard. 
people had done a lot of other hard things, uh, traveling to the pole, traveling to the pole unassisted, going around Greenland and so on and so forth. But conditions change rapidly on Ellesmere. You have extreme cold, you have ice breakup, you have ice moving, you have constrictions that never freeze up so that you have to be in a kayak. You don't want to be in a kayak in minus 50. That just doesn't work. You, There are just very narrow windows of conditions that will, will make it happen. And there's a certain amount of luck in getting those windows. And there's, uh, I believe, a certain amount of skill in moving when the time is right, making a maximum of the opportunities that are handed to you. Where is Ellesmere Island? Ellesmere Island is in the extreme northeast of the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. So at its farthest north, it's above 80 degrees north latitude, 10 degrees from the North Pole. It's one of the farthest points of land closest to the North Pole. It's right adjacent to Greenland up in the north. So at its narrowest neck, it's uh, 12 miles from Ellesmere to Greenland. They squeeze together. And what happens there is if you look at a map of the circumpolar north, most of the circumpolar north around 75, 80 degrees is land. Canada, Ellesmere, Greenland, uh, the um, Scandinavian countries and Russia. And there's only a few narrow straits of water that connect the North Pole Ocean, the polar ocean on the, in the north, with the rest of the world's oceans. So extreme currents move through these narrow straits because any differences in temperature, salinity, spin of the earth will cause water to move through. And where there's constrictions, that water moves fast, Venturi effect. So that narrow strait, that 12-mile strait between Ellesmere and Greenland was going to be our crux because you have a lot of water moving through there, a lot of ice, and there's a long history of people getting in big trouble in that area. What was your plan going into that expedition? plan was to leave in May when the ocean was still frozen and to walk for a month or a month and a half or two months, dragging kayaks loaded with uh, all our supplies and food and so on. And then when things started to break up, when things started to melt, when it started to be open water, we would start to paddle. We wanted four food drops so that we could travel light and fast. Uh, because of the logistics and the complications of Arctic travel and limitations on money, uh, we ended up with two. So we were missing two of our food drops. So that meant we had an easy, easy walk to the uh, Eureka weather station, then a hard walk to our food drop up on Ward Hunt, and then no food for the second half of the expedition. So the second half, we had no food drops at all. Arguably, the probably the toughest part of the expedition, including the Nara Strait. Right. 
So we had to get through the narrow strait in a reasonable amount of time or we were going to run out of food. Now, where did the trip start? There's three settlements on Ellesmere. Ellesmere is the 11th largest island in the world. It's, it's a big island. It's 1,500 miles around. Our journey was to do that in 100 days, 15 miles a day, as I said, a half a marathon a day. There's three settlements on the island that are permanently occupied. There's a Inuit village on the south coast of Greece Fjord, and there's a commercial flight in and out of there. So that was, you know, a few thousand dollars rather than tens of thousands to get there. And then there's a weather station on the west coast and a military base on the north coast. So we started in Greece Fjord and ended in Greece Fjord because it was a circumnavigation. Did you have a partner go with you? Uh, yeah, we had a, I, I had a partner. Originally, the, the partner was uh, Tyler Bratt and Tyler grew up, I, I live in the Bitterroot Valley in Western Montana. Tyler grew up here. Uh, I knew him as a, a small boy. I was good friends and paddle kayaking, paddling buddies with his dad. And um, yeah, there were a lot of people that participated. We taught Tyler how to paddle and how to enjoy rivers. And then he became an extreme, world-famous, record-setting uh, kayaker. So I met him at a trade show somewhere, and it was, yeah, hey, dude, hey, dude, hey, go, 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 hey, bro, how's it going? You know, that sort of thing, Tyler's that sort of guy. And um, he was uh, running around hustling money for some expedition, and I was running around hustling money for some expedition. And this is the whiskey and a map thing all over again, he kind of exuberance, patting me on the back and punching me on the shoulder and said, hey, you know, well, uh, we need to transfer the torch. We need to do an expedition together, the old and the new. Let's do something uh, big. We got to go big, dude. And I go, it just popped out of me. Well, we got to circumnavigate Ellesmere. It's been on my mind for 20 years. He's, yeah, dude, we'll do it. So um, Tyler and I was going to do it. And then we started looking at it and getting scared. And he says, we need more horsepower. We need Eric Boomer. So we got Eric Boomer involved, a uh, stream, whitewater, uh, world-class uh, river kayaker. He'd never been in a sea kayak, and he'd never been camping for more than five days in a row before that trip. And uh, Boomer showed up. Uh, he'd been driving all night, blah, blah, blah. And yet Boomer was in. And then Tyler broke his back, uh, jumping a waterfall in his kayak, and then it was me and Boomer. Take us through that trip. Okay. <laughs> it's written up in Crocodiles and Ice. It's hard to uh, summarize this in a short amount of time, but we started out on smooth ice, cold temperatures. Uh, we didn't have a thermometer, but uh, minus 20 Fahrenheit, that's sort of cold, not minus 50. Uh, dragging our kayaks uh, loaded with food, went to the Eureka weather station, uh, got some more food, another food drop, and the kindly grandmotherly cook at the weather station fed us sort of, well, I'm not supposed to do this, but and she stuffed food in our faces. And then um, 
we continued on up. As we crossed the line of 80 degrees latitude, we had a wolf come to visit us. And the wolf followed us into camp at 20 yards away. We made camp. It snuggled up against the tent so that it was a few inches from the tent, almost leaning against the tent like a pet dog would, and was there the next morning. So that's fact. After being with Mulanot and being with the Koryak people for five years, I decided this was not a chance encounter. This wolf was coming to talk to us. And what was it coming to say was that the fairy godmother wolf uh, guaranteeing a safe passage and everything was going to be hunky-dory. No, 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 no. There is no fairy godmother wolf. This wolf was saying, welcome to the high Arctic. You're entering, you're going from the high Arctic to the polar zone. Welcome. You're going to get cold. You're going to get tired. You're going to get frostbitten. You might die out here. Good to see you. Welcome. It's good to have you. And And that really, for me, set the tone, the emotional tone for the trip. The North Coast is reputed to be uh, very, very difficult to travel. And the North Pole travelers had warned us that we would not be making 15 miles a day, but 100 yards a day. Well, there's a big difference. If you're making 100 yards a day, you starve to death. If you make 15 miles a day, you get to your next food cache. And I had this theory that because North Pole people going from Ellesmere to the North Pole are going directly north, perpendicular to the land, they only spend a few minutes in that short distance right up against the shore. And then they run into these incredible pressure ridges where you have the whole ferocious winds of the North Pole blowing the ice against the shore and it crumples up into these big pressure ridges and it's just jumbled mountains, ridges of ice blown all apart and that's very almost impossible to travel across. Right against the shore where the water is very shallow, where the ice doesn't get a chance to build up, there would be a magic passageway. (laughs) And so we had uh, 20 or 30 days to get there and think about this. And Boomer would constantly say, are you sure about this, John? (laughs) Because, you know, if you're not sure, we're going to die. And I go, well, I'm not sure, but I think. And I I got a hint. Anyway, we got up there and we kept finding these magic passageways. And we made it across the North uh, Shore okay. We stopped at the um, military base and alert, and they gave us the bums rush out of there. They didn't want any hippie adventurer, wanderer dudes traveling around. So we got a jar of peanut butter and an apple turnover, and we're out of there. And then we came to the Nari Strait. And it was unbelievable power. It was like an avalanche going off every 10 minutes. It was, again, you have global forces going on here. You have the spin of the earth, the the temperature differences between the north and the south, driving this current through, through this neck. You have these big chunks of ice as big as a football field, a mile long, six feet thick, 
crashing into each other, crashing into the cliffs, exploding into the air, dancing rainbows of ice crystals in the in the sun. Well, we weren't going anywhere. <laughs> and we we struggled, fought, worked the tides. Uh, we for the next 17 days, we made averaged one mile a day at great risk to ourselves. Several times we could have gotten squanched. And then at nine o'clock at night, after fighting the ice all day, a wind came out of the, um, the east. No, the west. The wind came out of the west and pushed the ice offshore. There was cliffs on one side. We jumped in the boats. If the wind relaxed and the ice came back, we were dead. We paddled all night and got through the neck. One of the most glorious moments of my life. It was dead calm. The ice was out of sight. The ducks were skimming across the water. It was the first day of summer because first day we were paddling and simultaneously the first day of winter because the ocean was starting to freeze up again and we were paddling through a, a thin skim of ice. We made it through and then we got home. That was long-winded. <laughs> there was a time when you're waiting and hoping to get through that straight that you made a phone call to a buddy. Do you recall that? I, I think so. Um, I he, said he gave you some advice. Oh, okay. That there, there was a couple of phone calls. Um, one of them, I'll just tell you briefly, and then we get on to the good one. Was we said, "Polar bears scare us. We scare polar bears. The wind scares us. We don't scare the wind." But um, that's not the one you're looking for. Looking for is my friend Paul Atella, who's a world class endurance athlete in his own right, said to me, Don't do anything stupid. And I, I laughed. I said, Yeah, great. Thank you, Paul. It would be stupid to go out there and get schmucked by the ice, and equally stupid to stay here and uh, starve to death and then freeze to death come winter. So, uh, what kind of advice is that? And then he said, okay, John, if you think that what you're facing is a great barrier and you're going to have to overcome this barrier, you're not strong enough to do it. You will bash against the barrier and bash against the barrier and you will fail and you will die. You're not going to be able to climb over the barrier. You're going to have to worm your way through it. You're going to have to assume that the barrier doesn't exist. And that was the end of the phone call. And I thought, assume the barrier doesn't exist. There's chunks of ice as big as a football field flying in the air. And then I realized that, yeah, we had to assume that everything was okay. This was not a problem. And you go back to the spirit wolf, we might die out here. This is not a problem. And something's going to happen. Live in the moment and something is going to happen. And the barrier will not exist. And that's what happened the day that the wind came out of the West and blew it out. And there was this magic passageway, like a journey to the other world, like Kutha had opened it up for us, like the barrier did not exist. <laughs> Remarkable. There was one other episode on that trip I'd like to talk about. 
there was a section where you were wading through knee-deep, waist-deep ice chunks and ice water. Do you recall that? Of course, I'll recall after my deathbed. Uh, we were crawling. There was the there was so much resistance, and uh, these boats. Oh, I don't know. We had the boats weigh sixty pounds. They're probably two hundred and fifty, two hundred and seventy-five pounds loaded, and we're pulling them up and over one pressure ridge, down the other, a mountain of jumbled ice, down into these puddles. The boats were clogged down. We're crawling through the ice water. We still have 750 miles to go. <laughs> what kept you going for each step? Yeah, you, you, it, it was, again, we're just talking about power. We're talking about obstacles. We're talking about barriers. We're talking about living in the moment, being in the moment. I'm crawling through frigid ice water because I'm not strong enough. And Boomer, who's 50 years younger than me, wasn't strong enough to do it either. Pull the boat standing. You just need all four legs <laughs> to pull the boats. And if you see yourself in this expedition with a goal, with uh, so many miles to go and so many hours and so many days in this barrier, you will die. You will not succeed. You will crumple and die. And the only way to proceed, and I see this now as I'm going into old age, the only way to proceed is to assume the barrier doesn't exist. Live in the moment. See the cosmic humor of it all. See the beauty of it all. And I know you're going to. There are going to be skeptics out there that are going to say, "I don't know. I don't believe this." But you have to believe it. It's the only way. It's the way that we were able to keep going. Sounds remarkably similar to that night when the waves were bashing against you. You're pretty close to going going out and you saw the uh, luminescence in the waves that's it we've been talking about this for all these hours seeing the beauty in the moment and that gives you the that gives you everything that gives you the focus that gives you the flow look yesterday i was riding my mountain bike and i was with a bunch of people who were much faster than me and i was behind and I was thinking about catching up, thinking about you're old, you're slow, everybody's ahead of you. Oh, me, oh, my, oh, this is bad. And what did I do? I clipped a stump and just about broke my foot. And what was I thinking just before I clipped the stump and broke my foot? I was thinking, I have to catch up. I wasn't thinking I'm on this trail, I have to observe I have to get through the next five feet or I'm going to crash. <laughs> and that's a lesson that we have to learn over and over again. You and Boomer successfully complete that epic Arctic adventure. 104 days, I believe it took you. Yeah. Is that what earned you a National Geographic's award for Explorer of the Year? Yeah, well, we were nominated as one of the 10 Explorer of the Year parties. And then there was a vote and the people who won it were two Nepalis who hang glided or 
hang glided or kited off Everest and eventually went to the sea. They won. We were one of the top 10 explorers of the year. And it was a great honor and one I'll carry to my grave for sure. Remarkable, remarkable achievement. Thank you, Mike. Let's go to Kenya. You make this trip to Kenya, traveling up to the, I believe it's the northeastern corner, Samburu. Right. Why'd you go there? Um, <laughs> whiskey and a map. It comes over and over and over. I was giving a talk at the Harvard Travelers Club about Ellesmere, and this woman walked up. I had met her previously, and she said, I love the way you talked about your relationship with polar bears, the dominant predator of the North. I'm doing a lion study, and I'd like you to come and help me with my lion study because you have the right mindset to be able to live with the lions. And I said, yes. <laughs> There were many, many questions. I Googled around and this and that and that and everything. There were many reasons not to go. But if you don't go, then you don't go. And that magical moment is gone. And if you go, then you reach out for that magic and something will happen. Tell us about that. You go there to assist her in her research projects. And you arrive there in northeastern Kenya. I've traveled to Kenya a few times myself. That is a dangerous area, not just because of the wildlife. Right. That's where we're going with this. So on the third day that I was there, a lion killed and ate a cow. The herd of cows was being herded by a 10-year-old boy named David. Now, David had the presence to think, okay, the lion killed that cow. That cow is dead. I can't do anything about that. If I chase the lion away, then the lion will still be hungry. If I let the lion eat the cow, then the lion is full and won't kill again, and I have time to summon help. So he herded the rest of the cows up, left the lion eating the cow, came and got us. So Deepa, the village headman, called me and said, okay, we got to go track this lion. Uh, right. Uh what were we supposed to do when we found the lion? You see, have you ever tried to train a house cat not to eat sparrows? I mean, it seemed like we were supposed to go and tell this lion it was being a bad lion and it should eat zebras and not cows. But I didn't quite understand how to do that. But anyway, Deepa said he wanted me to come and uh, he joined me up. So. I don't know if you can see this. This is a wooden club. It's called the Rungu. One of the young warriors handed me the Rungu and said, well, you're chasing this lion and maybe things will go south and you and the, uh, and the lion will come whipping out of the bushes and try to eat you, in which case you have this wooden club to defend yourself. I said, well, thank you very much. This warrior, by the way, um, he, for his Rungu, he went down uh, one of the long-haul trucks going to Ethiopia. When the truck driver stopped to sleep, he stole a lug nut off of the truck and screwed it onto the end of his Rungu to make it a little more deadly. But I didn't have that. I just had the wooden Rungu. He said, um, do you know how to kill a charging lion with a Rungu? I said, no. You know, I grew up in suburban Connecticut. We've been through that. You missed that class. 
Yeah, I missed that class. My mother never told me. He said, yeah, yeah, I figured you're a white man, you know. We figured that you don't know how to kill a lion with a rungu. He says, most white men, they would, as the lion gets, I mean, close, I mean, like close, like arm's length away, would bop it on the forehead and try to kill it. And so I looked at him, I said, yeah. He said, well, that won't work. The, the lion will not stop. You will be dead for sure. Okay, how do you do it? Well, you jump, you spin. And this kid was uh, had the agility of an NFL running back. You jump, you spin, you hit the lion on the side of the neck, just along the edge of the neck, and you break its neck. Boom, lion stops. Boom, no problem. You're safe. Go home for dinner. So Instead of being dinner. Yeah. So I, he tried it, and, he, and then I tried it, and he looked at me with this sorrowful look like, oh, boy. That ain't going to work, but if that's the best you, <laughs> best you can do. So, okay. So I'm going through the savannah with Deepa. Deepa has no armament at all. He's He's got a knife in his belt, but nothing, no weaponry. And at first, I'm really angry. I'm really angry. Why are they doing this? We're in the African savannah. There's a lion out here. Why are they doing this? Why are they putting me in this danger? And then I realized that anger is one of those emotions that isn't going to do you any good at all. And what is going to, I have to go back to Mulanat. I have to go back to the Koryak people. I have to go back to my animal self. I have to be totally open totally here, totally now, totally present in this world with this lion. And I have to be at peace with this lion. And I have to be at peace with myself. Then I get this wave of joyousness coming through me. This is the most amazing experience I can do. And it's not because of what's going on outside. It's what's going on inside me. And my relationship with Mother Nature, my relationship with the lion, realizing I am not the dominant creature here. I am a traveler in this world, and I have to be at peace with this world and myself. And it was just a beautiful experience. So brought me back into the world of power. You see, where our power comes from, now we're near the Old Divide Gorge where humanity evolved. And I realized that from the very beginning of the early Stone Age, people survived, clearly, Homo sapiens survived on this savanna. Where did they get the power? When I got back to actually, well, excuse me, I'm going to back up. I had a book with me, um, Harari's book, Sapiens, and he talks about this power. And as I was going back and forth in the savannah, I was reading this book. Human beings actually weren't doing very well. Homo sapiens was an experiment that wasn't working. We had big brains, which caused us to... Big brains consume a lot of energy. Uh, they're metabolically expensive, and you have to eat more food to run your big brain. So much effort goes into your big brain that we became weak and slow, and we're not more powerful than the lion. 
And the human experiment was failing. The population was declining. We were at the edge of extinction. About 70,000 years ago, humans were just about extinct. And then something happened. Art appeared in the fossil record. And just as art appeared in the fossil record, the population started to explode. So while it's impossible to exactly prove cause and effect, but the ubiquitousness of art coincided over and over again through all cultures all around the world for all of time. And the human beings, we think of ourselves as a tool-using species. And of course, we're a tool-using species. But art came before sophisticated tools and weaponry. Art came before the bow and arrow, before the throwing spear, before the atlatl. And the chronology was humans almost extinct. Art, humans start, the population starts to explode. And then they start discovering sophisticated tools and weaponry. I gave a TEDx talk a number of years ago called Big Brains, Few Tools. What was it? It was art that gave us the power to survive. So this is the power that you summon up when you're chasing a lion in the bush armed with the rungu. And this was wonderful. And I would like to end the story here about this wonderful power of humanity, but that's not how the story ended. What happened? What happened? Well, what actually happened was that as time went on, there was civil strife, there was warfare, and there were people out there who fundamentally wanted to capture me, kidnap me, cut off my head, and post this up on Facebook. That was scary. That was scarier than the ice. That was scarier than the lion. And at one point, I was tracking lions with some of the younger warriors. And this time, they were all carrying AK-47s. And I wondered, why this time are we carrying AK-47s? And last time, we were carrying one goose. And we come across the tracks of a lion, and we don't follow it. And I realized that we're on the war path. We're walking a defense perimeter. We're looking for human footprints. This is war. So in this period, and this I talk about in my recent book, Tracking Lions, Myth, and Wilderness in Samburu, now I see the yin and the yang, the beauty of the humanity where our power comes from, from art, dance, mythology, singing, love, playing music. And then where did the evil come from? Why well, I never, I, I didn't steal money from these guys. I didn't sleep with their daughters or their wives. Why do they want to kill me? And in, in my book, I, I track this question, where did evil come from? I mean, there's a lot of evil going on in the world right now. Just read the newspaper. The early art was not absolutely symbolic art. It was always art. I mean, it was not, it didn't just 
depict what people saw. It, the art was myth. So in one cave painting in France, this is now more like 35 or 40,000 years ago, there's a man facing a bison, and the man is leaning back on his heels, but the man has a bird's head. The man has a giant erection. There's a bird in the lower left-hand corner of the drawing. So this man, man bird with an erection is facing this bison. Well, we don't know what the story is, but we know that the artist never saw a man with a bird's head and a giant erection, that this was a myth. And that mythology stories brought the tribes together and was part of this process that gave us this cumulative power of cooperation, of love, of observing, of presence. But then somewhere along the course of history, as people congregated into cities and became in larger groups of than the hunter-gatherer tribes, now they're living in cities with tens to hundreds of thousands of people, leaders learned that they could tell stories. And the more outrageous the story, the bigger the lie, the more people would believe it. And then they could manipulate people to evil. So our great strength, our great power to give us to survival has also become this doorway into the evil that exists has existed for all of time and exists today. I think the true benefit of exploration is that it puts you in situations, puts you in places, connects you with people that allows you to, well, simply see things in a different light, but also question assumptions that you have and sometimes clarify issues, I would imagine, that may have been murky. But the explorer, in the best sense, goes out into the wild places, observes, and then simply comes back and reports what they see, what they've learned, and hopes that through that story, people learn. And I think you, uh, you epitomized that uh, very well throughout all your travels. A lot of the people who follow this podcast are themselves adventurers, explorers. Question that we always get is why? And you've explored that a lot in your travels. Why go out there, risk life, risk injury to go see what's on the other side of that mountain? Right. <laughs> I asked that question in spades in my book, um, In the Wake of the Jomen, which chronicled the two-year paddle from Japan to Alaska. And I asked it again in the historical anthropological sense. We know that people traveled from Central Asia to North America to populate the Western Hemisphere. That's a fact. We know that that journey was arduous in many ways, that either people had to cross an ocean or cross the Arctic. So why would you do that? It has to be built into our DNA, built into our soul. 
because there have been adventurers, explorers throughout all of human history. People moved out of Africa and traveled all across the Europe and Asia where wildebeest and chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas, they stayed put in Africa. Why did the people move? It clearly has something to do with our big brain and our brains aren't constant. Everybody is different. There's a bell-shaped curve. There's people who like to stay at home and people who like to adventure. And there's no value judgment. Adventurers aren't better than people who stay at home and people who stay at home aren't better than adventurers. We're all equal in that sense in our human value, but we're different. But evolution has kept both attributes, both characteristics in the gene pool. And the best explanation that I can have, that I've heard of that, is that in normal times, in times where everything is safe and pleasant and and peaceful, the people who stay at home and raise their children and tend their gardens and their farms are going to do better than the crazies who run off and try to paddle across oceans and um, climb cliffs and do all that, because those people have a greater chance of dying. So the people who are more pacifists, more stay-at-home, have an advantage. But during tumultuous times, like famine, like warfare, The people who are willing to break out and migrate are the ones that will now survive. So in an imaginary population going through tens of thousands of years, the people who like to stay at home, their numbers in the population will grow and grow and grow, and the adventurers will become fewer and fewer and fewer. And then some great calamity will happen, and the people who stayed at home will die off preferentially, and the adventurers who go off into other lands will live. I'm a perfect example of that. My ancestors came from Eastern Europe and Poland and Germany, and we were, my grandparents were the ones who left and came to North America. And the people who stayed were Jewish. The people who stayed were mostly killed off in the Nazi Holocaust. So the adventurers then won out for that generation. I just happen to be an adventurer. I mean, there's no, that's just in me. I'm not going to try to explain that or rationalize it. It's been who I am ever since I can remember and before. My mother used to say, I always ran away and go in a vacant lot and run through the tall grass. I was always running away and going exploring. So that's just me. That's probably going to be the best answer when somebody asks that explorer why, to simply say, it's just me. (laughs) Throughout the expeditions and adventures we've been talking about, uh, you've always referred to kind of the situation, well, we may get crushed, but we're not going to die. Recognizing that fine line between acceptable risk and a deadly mistake. How do you how do you walk that fine line? Boy. Well, my wife of 25 years, who was always considered 
more careful than me and the more conservative and maybe perhaps the smarter. She was writing a book about avalanche safety, and one day she broke every rule in the book that she was writing, the basic rules that she wrote down, and she died in an avalanche. So, yeah, that's a fine line. I remember talking with Jimmy Chin um, one day, and there was some interviewer there, and they were um, doing their ski off of Mount Everest, and they they had a guide to do the logistics to get to the top of Everest, and the guide said, well, you can't do that, what you're planning on doing. They were making some diverse, and Jimmy said, well, we're professional adventurers, not client, clients. We take risks that your clients you you won't let your clients take, but we take them because this is who we are. And yeah, you you go to that fine line and you don't know where the edge is, but you have to step close to the edge, but not over the edge. And that takes all the skill, all the presence that you have. And also, Mike, a little bit of luck. I've had a lot of friends die, a lot of friends that I've shared adventures with, shared my bed with, shared ropes with, who were very, very good and who got unlucky. So luck is a part of it. And perhaps understanding the power that you've been referring to, understanding your inner power, being present so that you can be more keenly aware of what nature is sending your way. Presence, 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 and presence. Let's go back to that simple little thing that I talked about a few minutes ago, mountain bike riding in my backyard in a very friendly environment on a trail that I've ridden a hundred times. I became, I lost my presence. I was thinking about something other than riding my bike on this trail. And I clipped a stump. There's a million stumps. I clipped it with my toe. Well, my foot. And I crashed, went over the handlebars, and I thought I broke my foot, but I think now I did not. It's presence 100% of the time. There's always a chance to stub your toe or trip over a vine or not see something. Why did Chris, just before Chris died, I watched her make the mistake that would kill her. And what went through my head is, what kind of a gong show is this? Why is she making that mistake? She had been so careful. We had skied so many big lines. Why in that day did she shut off her presence? And I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I do know that presence is everything and presence is glorious. And it's a cliche. Adventurers say, we go adventuring because it forces us into the flow. It forces us into presence. And, and that's true. It's become a cliche. We all say it. I say we go adventuring because we're addicted to it. And then we get the presence as a byproduct. And presence is available. If you're an oboe player, you know, you could write Zen and the Art of Oboe Playing. There are other ways to get presence. But, uh, yeah, that's what keeps us alive out there. 
spoken about this triumvirate of hunter, tundra, and how did you put it? Traveler in in the other dimensions in the spirit world. Spirit world. The shaman. The shaman, the hunter, and the tundra. What those three things mean to you in conjunction with each other? Well, when I wrote the book, The Raven's Gift, about my experiences with Moulinot, and I get interviewed, most of the interviewers focus on the shaman because that somehow has selling appeal in Western society. And thank you for asking outside of that question. Because the shaman is, is kind of romantic or glorious in our, in our view of the world. The book wasn't just about the shaman. My magical healing and my hallucinogenic Amanita journeys into the other world are certainly uh, catchy. And they certainly happened. And they're certainly part of the story. But what I learned in my five years with the Koryak people is that the hunter is just as important as the shaman. And this should be obvious. So there's always a balance between the spirit world, the journey into power, and then the very practical world of living on the tundra and staying alive and watching the storms and all these presence things that we were talking about. So you need the presence, you need the mental headspace of the hunter, but then you also need the source of deeper power from the shaman. And the two are in balance. And the, the consciousness that keeps us alive is then modulated by the spirit journey that keeps us sane. And to be functional in our society, to be functional in, in any society, you need to follow the hunter's consciousness. But then you get all tied up in, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a job selling insurance and I have to remember that this client is this and that client is that. My daughter's smoking dope and is in trouble with the principal. And all these things drive you crazy, you see. And then you have to go and pick up the world of the shaman and let you sing and dance. And that's the art, the music that gave us the power to survive. So the shaman and the hunter are both inside of us and are both critical components of who we are. And it's the balance that gives us our survival. And then, of course, the tundra, the recognition that everything, our food, our power, our everything is a gift of Mother Earth. And if we forget that, we're hooped. We're going to lose. It's not going to work. So the shame and the hunter and the tundra. Beautiful. I have one last serious question. Any advice on how to balance the hunter, the shaman, and the tundra in our personal lives? Always seeking presence. The hunter is most successful when the hunter is present. The journey into the spirit world is coming from presence. Our brains are trained to think in past and present and um, future. Think like an animal. Live in the present for whatever you do. And always let your mind slow down, close out, 
And always remember that the earth is the source of everything, that we're not we're not the top of the hierarchy. We're not all that important, that um, we're here because of the gift of the earth. Latest book, Tracking Lions. Now, you're on record as saying that that's your last book. Now, I, for one, hope that that's not true. For the many books that you've written, I'm going to have links to all of those in the notes accompanying this podcast. For folks who want to learn more about you and follow you, how would they do that? Well, thank you, Mike. Go to my website, johnturk.net, and it, it lists, uh, you know, it's a whole big project with all of my books. Um, my books are available on the website uh, through the contact page. You can email me, and I answer all my emails. I really do. So send me an email. I'm not as I'm on Facebook, uh, John Turk, and on uh, at Deep Wilderness and Twitter, and I'm on Instagram at John in Darby. But I don't keep up with those as much. I I hate to say, oh, we did this really nice mountain bike ride today, and then tomorrow, oh, we did another mountain bike ride. So I don't. I don't do Facebook and Instagram all that much. But the best way to do it is go on my website, read my book, send me an email, uh, have a chat, and um, we'll go on from there. Final thoughts for the people listening to this podcast. Essence. <laughs> Living the now. Our brains are so complicated, we're going to go um, dingy and we're going to... Uh, not be present all the time. We're going to ride that mountain bike trail and we're going to clip that stump. That just happens. But um, there's a glory in presence when we can achieve it. Breathe from your belly. Uh, love your neighbor. <laughs> there's, there's so much not love going on. It's just so sad. Love your neighbor and uh, peace, peace be with you. John, it has been a real pleasure and a privilege to be able to talk with you during this podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Mike. Thanks for giving me three whole hours and uh, I've loved your questions and um, starting to get used to your face and your, your voice. Uh, yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Let's keep in touch. Thank you very much. Uh, let's keep in touch. All right, John, we'll see you down the road. Okay, Mike, take care. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.